Work falsifies you all the time. Work has negative feedback loops all the time. People have good days and bad days at work. And so it's hard to put your sense of self in the hands of another, in the hands essentially of uh, a boss or the market. When you make you know, political interest your religion, when you make actual faith in God your religion, you can sort of worship that from afar without ever being you know, explicitly castigated by like a boss, right? And so there's ways in which I think that like the kind of workism that we develop, this kind of faith in work, can actually be like really sickening. Because again, these jobs were not created to necessarily fill us with self-actualization. These jobs are very often created in order to just be jobs. And so I'm afraid of people that place too much emphasis in their work. It is my distinct pleasure and privilege to welcome back to the pod the author of the new book, On Work, Money, Meaning, Identity. You may know him from his columns in The Atlantic or his very popular podcast, Plain English, Derek Thompson. Welcome back, Derek. It's great to be here. Thanks so much, Andrew. Derek, it was so much fun reading uh, this book, in part because it was a trip down memory lane where it had some of your greatest hit essays from The Atlantic, including... Some something you wrote from Ohio that profoundly influenced my presidential campaign. I don't know if you knew that, mm-hmm. um, but you've been writing about work, technology, progress, capitalism, leisure time, all kind of uh, interwoven together, and this new thing that you call workism. Uh, so, what the heck is workism? Yeah, workism is. Uh, an idea that I had maybe two or three years ago where I saw that a lot of people who were middle class, upper middle class, uh, you know, this, the managerial lead of America, uh, who very often had fallen out of love with organized religion, had in an age where religiosity had declined, made work their religion. So what does that mean? You know, people say like, you know, X is a religion all the time. Um, well, I think that historically, a lot of things that people have sought from organized religion, like meaning, community, transcendence, self-actualization, a lot of those things are um, virtues that people seek explicitly from their jobs. And I became very interested in the degree to which work had seemed to replace God in many people's lives. And I think that there are some ways in which this is not all bad. It's clearly better to enjoy your job than to not enjoy your job. But at the same time, as I wrote in the piece, I think a lot of people essentially made their desks their altars. They asked for much more out of work than work was prepared to give them, and that it was becoming a source of both quiet individual misery and broader systemic berserkness. And so we can go into each of those, but I saw all these issues sort of coming out of this fundamental issue that people had essentially made work their religion. Well, certainly the decline of religiosity has been well documented. Uh, and I, I had a guy on the pod named Arthur Brooks who oh, yeah. thinks that politics has kind of supplanted organized religion for a lot of folks. And he likened cable news talking heads to essentially uh, preachers, uh, idols, <laughs> if, if, if you will. And uh, I think work has occupied this place for a lot of people. I confess that 
I had some ambivalence when I was reading your description of workism because I'm probably a workist myself, and I think that that that, that, that you <laughs> actually described and said, "Look, like, you know, uh, I, I might be guilty of, of of this even as I'm describing it." Yeah, I think I confess to being a potential or full-blown workist in the essay. I absolutely put work many times at the center of my life. I absolutely often will have a day determined in ways I don't feel good about by whether or not things went well at work. That, you know, when I'm with my friends, when I'm with my wife, I will be in a good mood or a bad mood based almost explicitly on, like, what just happened to me in my job in the previous hour. And the truth is, you know, diagnosis must come before the cure. And I want to, or wanted to, when I wrote this piece, essentially see that part of myself, see it clearly and say, is this some, is this a part of me that I want to be a part of me? Is it a part of me that I'm proud of? Or is this a value in my life that I would like to downshift a bit? Because, and this goes a little bit philosophically toward the difference between work as a religion, um, and even frankly, politics as a religion, or actual religion, faith in God as a religion. Work falsifies you all the time. Work has negative feedback loops all the time. People have good days and bad days at work. And so it's hard to put your sense of self in the hands of another, in the hands essentially of uh, a boss or the market. Um, when you make you know, political interest your religion, when you make actual faith in God your religion, you can sort of worship that from afar without ever being you know, explicitly castigated by like a boss, right? And so there's ways in which I think that like, the kind of workism that we develop, this kind of faith in work, can actually be like, really sickening. Because again, these jobs were not created to necessarily fill us with self-actualization. These jobs are very often created in order to just be jobs. And so I'm afraid of people that place too much emphasis in their work. Well, one of the things you wrote in the piece when you talk about Ohio's economic transition, and I, I tried to document some of this too for people, uh, was that idleness has really negative psychological effects for a lot of people that experience it. Uh, there was one person you quote who likened it to uh, losing a loved one, something along those lines. And mm -hmm. time use studies show that if you have free time, particularly if you're a man, uh, you don't necessarily run out and volunteer more or do things that people think of as kind of productive time uses. You watch TV. Uh, yeah, yeah. That, that there's a lot of TV watching, a lot of computer use, uh, a, a lot of things that uh, make you feel less connected. So so that that's one of the natural outgrowths of your concern with workism, I think, is what the heck do we do when you don't have work? Yes, and that's, that's really well put because on the one hand, someone might have listened to you and say, aren't you making two opposite points? That on the one hand, you're saying when we're too obsessed with our jobs, that's bad. But on the other hand, when we don't have a job, that's also very bad. Yeah, you know, this, is, this is absolutely something that can benefit from the you know, Aristotelian mean. Like people should have jobs. It seems that not having jobs is incredibly immiserating. But also I think there's a, there are dangers in what we have formerly called careerism, workaholism, that is being too obsessed with progressing in your career, um, too obsessed with working long hours. And then workism, another word that I'm throwing into this sort of linguistic jambalaya, which to me says not just about you know, being obsessed with progressing through your life or um, working long hours, it's about defining yourself, you know, hanging your identity on the tentpole of what you do so that who you are is what you do. I think that is the danger at the other end of the spectrum. But the reason I think it's really sophisticated to point out that these two things exist 
in the same world is because they don't necessarily have to. You know, we don't need to have built a world, for example, um, where attachment to the labor force was the be-all, end-all of society. But the truth is, we kind of have. If you yeah. want earned income tax credit, you have to work. If you want some of these other, you know, uh, means-tested credits that are attached to people who are working, attached essentially to W-2s, you have to work. And so we have, as a message, top-down from the government, from people that are making policy, this idea that work, in fact, is central, not only to your identity, but to your ability to be above the poverty line. You, yep. If you want to escape that world of poverty, you, of course, have to work until you're you know, 65 years old and you can collect Social Security. So you know, th there are other worlds that we could theoretically build, and a lot of this book is about what those worlds could look like. This podcast is sponsored by Helix Sleep. I've always been a mattress guy because I figured if I'm gonna do something for up to eight hours, maybe I should do it right? And Helix Sleep lets you do it right by sending you one of 20 unique mattresses that's tailored for you. I took the Helix Sleep quiz, takes only a couple minutes, and I was matched with a Helix Dawn mattress because I wanted something that felt firm and I sleep on my back. That mattress is exactly what I needed, but strangely enough, my kids now seek out that mattress in the house and want to sleep on it even though I did not order it with them in mind. If you have a high quality mattress, it is a game changer, a huge difference maker. Don't take my word for it. Helix has been awarded the number one mattress picked by GQ and Wired magazine. It is even recommended by multiple leading chiropractors and doctors of sleep medicine as a go-to solution for improving your sleep. Helix is offering up to 30% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners. Go to helixsleep.com yang. That's helixsleep.com yang. This is their best offer yet and it won't last long. With Helix, better sleep starts now. I am pumped to announce that I have a novel coming out on September 12th, The Last Election. It's a political thriller co-written with my friend Stephen Marsh, who wrote the book The Next Civil War. If you listen to this podcast, Stephen's been a repeat guest. Stephen and I became friends and thought we should collaborate on a way to scare the shit out of people, but also entertain them with a story of what could happen in this upcoming election or the election thereafter. Do check it out at andrewyang.com slash books. And there's a special discount code last election that you can use for 30% off at the publisher's website. I'll be talking more about this book, but I'm so pumped to get this out into the world. Last election coming your way. One of the trends that I've been stressed about ever since I started in public life, I suppose, <laughs> has been the uh, departure of Americans from the workforce. Uh, so there, there's been a multi-year trend of the labor force participation rate generally declining. I mean, it's had fits and starts upward. Um, as you and I are talking right now, I think it's at 62.5%, uh, which has recovered somewhat, but is still lower than 2020 when COVID started. Uh, I think about 2 million plus Americans have left the workforce 
post-COVID. What's your read on what the heck happened to those 2 million workers? Because some of the explanations I see, um, they're, like, it seems like it's a bit of a mystery, but people say, look, some of it is um, people leaving urban areas and then doing things that don't show up as jobs. Some of it is women um, in particular focusing more on uh, family time and responsibilities. Well, so I'll, I guess I'll just leave, leave it there for a sec. Like, what do you think has happened to the workforce in the last uh, couple of years? I think to the extent that there is a simple answer to the question, the answer to the question is people just retired and they stayed retired. Yeah, so there's I some early think, retirees. I, yeah, that happened. I think, that's, I think that's most of it. I think that most of it is that people stay retired. If you look, I believe, at the prime age participation rate, that is the share of people between the age of 25 and 54 who are working, it is more or less back to 2020. If you look at teens, uh, they've been much less likely to work for many decades. Um, that largely isn't necessarily just because teens are uh, you know, lazy. A lot of times, um, or in many cases, homework is just taking up and extracurricular activities are taking up more time. So they're less likely to say, you know, work in you know, the record stores of 1970, and they're more likely um, to be taking on extracurricular activities. Um, and I also finally think that a bit of it is... Um, uh, mothers in particular, I was going to say uh, parents, but I do think it's probably specifically mothers um, who at various ages may have pulled out of the labor force during the pandemic and somewhat stayed out of the labor force so that they're more likely to be part-time. Um, but my, my read of the data and mostly the data that I look at would come from Fred, the St. Louis Fed yeah. uh, sort of data source, the database, which of course you're very familiar with, um, says that most of this is about uh, senior citizens, non-disabled senior citizens who got out of the economy because they were afraid, rightly, that COVID represented a disproportionate risk to them and stayed out of the economy in part because they didn't want to come back, go back to their old jobs. They were still afraid of COVID. They got used to being retired and they maybe owned their house and liked what they had in their portfolio and so decided to retire on it. Oh, well, one of the big mega trends over this last couple of years uh, that might have a relationship is uh, the move to remote work, which you've written a lot about. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm sitting in New York. How is it in D.C.? Here in New York, uh, I'd say office buildings are half full slash half empty. D.C., I believe, leads the country in the share of workers who work at least part time from home. Um, I'm talking to you from home. Many, many people, as I understand it. Uh, are are working from home. I think it's a I think it's more than fifty percent in Washington D.C. and that's because to a certain extent, you know, D.C. is a little bit of a company town. We got this you know big thing, the federal government that you know siphons off two trillion excuse me four trillion dollars uh, of of revenue every year. So there's a lot of people that are either are employed by the federal government or like you know one or two degrees away from the federal government. And um, uh, you know federal work is very white collar. It's it's um, you don't necessarily have to clearly work in a factory. It's not like retail. It's not like schooling, which you know it's hard to be really hard to be. I think a, a remote kindergarten teacher. Um, so yeah, DC. I believe last time I looked at the data, led the country in the share of people who are remote. So in a way, you're a test case for something. The future of remote work by Washington. Yeah, yeah, exactly. This is the future. Yeah, it's right here. I am the future, precisely. So you wrote about how. Uh, there are, there's a need for us to try and optimize organizations in particular uh, to remote work, to replace the opportunity for soft work. Um, you also write about some things that I totally agree with, by the way, that's like, hey, some of the drawbacks, it's going to be tougher for young people uh, mm -hmm. to gain traction and ascend within organizations, which I agree with. Um, uh, and it also might be harder for the cultivation of new ideas and innovation unless organizations take very, very 
real steps toward trying to uh, create those opportunities? Yeah, I would say that while I am a fan of remote work, and it would be incredibly hypocritical for me to not be a fan of remote work as I'm currently working remotely, I do think there are probably three problems. They all sort of come down to this issue of novelty. I think remote work probably isn't as good at forging new relationships, at coming up with new ideas, and at bringing on new people into a company. So to go through all three of those really quickly, I think that research seems to show that um, it's easier to build trust between people who don't know each other if they can see their entire bodies. You know, when you are slacking with someone or g-chatting with someone and they give you a sort of curt response to an idea that you thought was really, really wonderful, they just say like, okay, they type the letters okay in response to this idea you thought was like really interesting. It's easy to get offended. It's easy to write in negative emotions where negative emotions didn't exist. But maybe if you had that exact same interaction in person and you, you know, handed someone, you know, whatever, a manila folder, no one carries them anymore, but you like handed someone a printed out piece of paper with an idea and they said, okay. And they had this like smile on their face and their body language said, I think this is a really cool idea and I'm excited that you brought it to me. All right, well, that's the exact same language. Okay on Slack versus okay in person. But we're much less likely to take offense when we see sort of the full data set of someone's, someone's full-bodied response to us. So in that way, I think that psychological safety is probably easiest to build in person and why lots of organizations that are remote have maintained success while being remote by having a lot of offsites, by having a lot of in-person meetings. Because there's this understanding that a company is not really a company if people are only talking to each other on Slack. That's not a company. It's a, it's a group text. You know, it's a, it's a group text that pays oh, oh, so corporate harsh, taxes. Um, and so I think that it's really important um, to, for these companies to have opportunities for colleagues to actually see each other and build that kind of trust and psychological safety. Atlantic, take note. Derek wants everyone to, to, to get I don't. What, what, I'm say, what I'm saying instead is, 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 is meaningfully different. And this is a point of contention at, at my and many other organizations. It's not that I think that everyone needs to be in the office on every given Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. It's rather that if no one is ever together on any Monday, Wednesday, Tuesday, Thursday, Friday, that's when you have a problem. That it's important for remote first companies to build in a habit of physical world reunions because people like working with people, not with icons on a group chat. This podcast is sponsored by ExpressVPN. A few decades ago, private citizens used to be largely that. Private. What's changed? The internet. Think about everything you've browsed, searched for, watched, or tweeted. Now imagine all that data being crawled through, collected, and aggregated by third parties into a permanent public record. Your record. Having your private life exposed for others to see was once something only celebrities worried about. But in an era where everyone is online, everyone is a public figure. To keep my data private when I go online... I turn to ExpressVPN. Do you know there are hundreds of data brokers out there whose sole business is to buy and sell our data? The worst part is you don't know what they're doing. You don't get to have your say. That's why I use ExpressVPN. Just hit one button and then your internet connection gets rerouted through an encrypted server. No one can see your IP address. You're completely in your own private internet. Every time I turn ExpressVPN on, I'm given a random IP address shared by other ExpressVPN customers. That makes it harder for third parties to track me and harvest my data. No matter what device you're on, you just hit one button 
and you get your own protected connection. So if, like me, you believe that your data is your business, secure yourself with the number one rated VPN on the market. Visit expressvpn.com yang and get three extra months for free. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S vpn.com yang. Go to expressvpn.com yang to learn more. I'm going to speak for myself for just a moment, Derek, because I, I though my situation might be unusual, but whatever. So when, when people send me messages around an idea um, they might have or a company they're working with, so you know I get them in all forms of media, um, I might get a text message about it, I might get an email about it, I might get a DM about it, I might get uh, you know a deck about it. Part of it is that if someone is presenting something to you in person, you're just much more likely to take it to the next level um, both in your own mind and also in terms of your deeds, your actions. Yep. Like if, if you get a message from someone, um, then, you know, like the, the path of least resistance is not necessarily to follow through to the nth degree. So that I think there's a, like a gener, generation of reciprocity that occurs in hmm. person to a much higher uh, extent where it's like, oh, I'm not going to be able to ignore your thing because, you know, you're freaking – like, look at me. <laughs> right. Yeah, right. Yeah, that's exactly it. Well, it's, you know, I, I don't know if I'm sort of like making up psychology here, but whatever. I'll just go ahead and make it up. When we are talking to someone live, in person, getting lunch or drinks with them, getting coffee with them, their body occupies our full visual field. What they're saying to us occupies our full auditory field. We are immersed in the issue of what they are saying and what they look like. When I get an email from someone, when I get a DM from someone, when I get a Slack from someone, that Slack at any given moment occupies what? 5% yeah, of the screen that I'm looking at? And, their yeah. I- and the little avatar icon occupies maybe 0.5% of the screen? And it's just a burp. It's just a message. And so I can at any moment click away and forget about it forever. So there's just all sorts of, I don't know what you want to call it, psychological, phenomenological reasons why being with someone physically is so much, is so much different than associating with 15 people in one-off ways on a computer. Now, I want to be clear that I think remote work can do some things that offices can't do. I think that commutes are, by and large, a scourge for most people. I don't think commutes do certainly make people t- unhappy. It's like the single biggest correlation. To Absolutely. Yep. You know that you, right. Great. You know that data, right. The commutes seem to make people miserable. Um, if people could, you know, literally just teleport uh, to work, I suppose that could cut down the commute time, but it's wonderful that people have more time with their families, uh, with their partners, with their spouses, uh, with their friends um, to work out, uh, to cook dinners rather than order in. If that's what they prefer to do. I think that time returned to workers is really fantastic. And frankly, there's all sorts of ways in which we might have, there might be ways of developing more creative networks on the internet than in an office because the internet gives you uh, or exposes you to a network of thinkers that is larger than any particular Slack channel or office space. So there are ways in which I think remote work can be better than office work. But I do think that in this particular narrow corner that we're talking about right now, it's narrow, but it's I think very important. Um, about trust and about follow-through, 
there just is a material difference between meeting someone and seeing their entire body and getting an email from someone and being able to archive that in 0.5 seconds. I think all the time too about a younger version of myself, Derek, because right now, if you give me a choice in terms of remote work or an office, I mean, it's remote all the way because, you know, I've got yeah. so much stuff going on. It seems ridiculous for me to like go to an office and, um, and, and the rest of it. So again, like I, I do think uh, a lot about young people and it's like, whoosh, like, you know, it, it's going to be harder. And, and I had another conversation with a guy you probably know well, Martin Ford, who wrote um, mm. uh, Rise, Rise of the Robots. Um, and so one, one of the things we're talking about, um, which I, I'd love to ask you about is, is the impact of uh, AI and automation, and you're one of the earlier thinkers saying, "Look, guys, like, and, and there's something happening. There's something brewing." I mean, you were writing about it back in uh, 2015, the same time Martin was, uh, and Martin made an observation which I thought was fascinating. But he said, "Look, um, a lot of the most readily automatable work in an organization was done by entry level people." <laughs> and so if you are replacing that work or getting it done by AI, then it's, you're going to look around and be like, do I need this many entry-level people? And like, so you're going to have a harder ladder to climb. Or that the beginning yeah. of the ladder might not exist in a lot of these, these firms. Right, yeah. Two points I want to respond to. The first is I think you very rightly pointed out that attitudes toward remote work stratify by age. And older established workers, especially those with families, are much more likely to say in surveys they want to spend more time at home, especially if they're a little bit more introverted. Whereas people who are younger in surveys that are done by Stanford's Nicholas Bloom, who's done some of the best uh, research on um, preferences by managers and workers um, on working from home, he finds that the people who want to spend the most time in the office are, in fact, young people uh, because they want to feel like they, are, they belong to a culture and a culture that isn't just a group slack. Second, on the issue of AI and... Um, young workers or entry-level workers. There's two factors here, and I wonder how they cross-cut. On the one hand, entry-level workers, just by dint of their entry level, know the least about their industry. And as a result, you would think that they're the easiest to automate because uh, this is where the AI, the large language model, whatever technology we're, we're using, the least amount of sophistication is necessary in order to automate or somehow improve upon the tasks that those 22-year-olds are doing. At the same time, 22-year-olds are really cheap, and uh, at least cheap compared to 23-year-olds, who are cheap compared to 25-year-olds, et cetera, et cetera. And so um, the most profitable places to automate tend to be big cost centers. And I don't know, there might be a lot of companies where, you know, hiring, you know, if you're McKinsey or Bain or BCG, let's say you're a consulting firm, and you're looking at ChatGPT and you're looking at these large language models and you're thinking, you know, I think a lot of the research that we've historically relied on a pool of 22-year-olds to do, we could theoretically do with large language models. Now, maybe you think that and you say, you know, we used to have uh, 80 people in each annual class of graduating college seniors come into uh, BCG in this office. Now it's going to be 40 and we're going to try to LLM our way through the other 40. Maybe you make that decision. Um, or maybe in the short run, you still just hire 80 people, teach them all how to use large language models really well. And as a result, you realize that like, oh, wow, like we need way more business because these kids, these, these you know, 22 year olds are so much more productive. And as a result, you have to hire more business development in order to drum up more business for BCG. So there's, there are also potentially ways, at least in the short term, these very same technologies 
by dint through productivity could either replace work or increase work because suddenly all these productive people means we need to hire up in our business development office. The Ford Tour is coming to a city near you. That means I'm coming to a city near you. I'm heading to San Francisco, Los Angeles, Seattle, Raleigh, Denver, and more in the spring. Go to FordParty.com to check out the upcoming dates or just check out my social media. Primarily Twitter, unfortunately. See you soon. I signed on to this letter that uh, Tristan Harris helped organize that said, look, let's try and put a pause on these tools for a minute. Um, now, did I think that uh, that was likely to um, stimulate productive conversation? Yes. Did I think that, you know, it was going to uh, be effectuated? Uh, you know, probably, probably, uh, probably not. Um, but one of the reasons why I was very happy to sign on to it was because everything I was hearing was that there are a lot of organizations that are trying to deploy these tools in ways that are going to um, – hurt workers uh, over some time frame. And I feel like they, they think they have no choice. Yeah. How do you feel about Italy banning ChatGPT entirely? You know, I mean, I, so, and that's the other side. Like I, I talked to a friend who's a partner in a law firm and they banned AI entirely. And that seems like a loser. You know what I mean? It, it, like it's just straight up um, protectionist stuff that, that I, I think is going to have a very natural um, political base because you know, like no one cares about the, you know, jobs of AI. If you think about it, it's like, you know, it's like, oh, AI does more work. It's like, you know, I, I, um, I just care about human workers. Um, I, so I'm very concerned about what's going to happen in a lot of these uh, environments and organizations. I think we've got a triple whammy going personally, um, which is that we have this move to remote work, which puts organizations in a sort of different <laughs> bent in terms of what, like what they can do and, and automating. And then you have uh, AI coming online and everyone feeling like you have to rush pell-mell to use these tools uh, and adopt them as, as quickly as possible. And then the, the third part that I would put out there is that now you have like a more constricting uh, capital environment with like rising interest rates and, um, and, and the rest of it where people are, are going to feel like they have to, um, like get ruthless about their uh, their cost structure. So, what do you think is going to happen in six months? I have no particular. This is this is not like a leading question where I have like you know some hammer to throw down on my position on the six month letter. Um, I, I it was it was interesting to me, and I don't think I took a side. Um, but what could be done if if you if you agree the technology should be used, and you disagree with the decision to you know ban it by places like Italy? And, but you also think that there should be a pause. What do you think happens in that six months that brings us into a better situation when we come out of it in September 2023? I contemplated that very thing, Derek, when I was reading the letter being like, what could we do in six months if we had our acts together? Uh, so number one, I, I thought that individuals and organizations would get a better read on what the heck AI would mean uh, for them, their staffing, their jobs. Uh, and you'd be able to to make some uh, like plans and actions in that time. Um, an ideal development would be that the government said, "Look, we don't know what the heck is going on in this space, and we not, we're not even sure who's supposed to regulate it, really." So what we should do is come up with an actual AI regulatory 
agency and hopefully framework uh, and have Congress throw down and say, look, this is the agency that's going to be responsible for it because this is a very, very important new development. And by the way, there were some techies who were calling for something similar. They're like, we don't even know who the heck's supposed to be running point on this over there. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, now, did I think that, again, like, did, did I think that the pause was likely to happen? I did not. But I, I, I did think, well, in an ideal world, we'd start rolling some, some kind of um, commission out uh, that could round people up and say, okay, guys, what would rules of the road even look like in, mm-hmm. in this space? Um, because right now the incentives are for the biggest tech companies to go as fast as they can. I think that's right. I think the biggest incentives are for the tech companies to go as fast as they can. I, I don't know yet like, what the right test is for these tools, for example, on alignment. How, what is a te- what is, what's an SAT test that we could give these large language models? And apparently they're very, very good at taking SAT tests, so we should have no doubt that they could be able to finish it. What's a test we could give that would make us certain that the tools are essentially good and not bad, um, or I guess to use the lingo of the day, aligned and not misaligned? Um, likely to be aligned going forward and less likely to be nefarious. Um, it seems like we need more people working on writing those tests and figuring out what the questions should be because I sometimes find that the debate right now is between people who say, you know, pedal to the metal, let's just see how fast this thing can go. And, you know, there's obviously not a particular, like, ethic there. That's just, you know, interest in seeing how far um, you can shoot this slingshot. But then on the other hand, I guess I just don't know what the other side is hoping for all the time. And again, I, I find myself not even, like, refereeing this. I mean, I, I find myself an, an interested observer of, the, of this debate. I'll, I'll give you an example of something that, that was immediate. University administrators said to me that they're looking at going to oral exams because it's the only way that they can be confident you didn't use AI. Um, so how long does it take for universities to come up with a new way of uh, testing students? You know, I mean, could you get that done in six months? Maybe. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so th- there, there are different adaptations that can be had. When you talk about how good these things are at tests, the last I saw was GPT-4 could get a 90th percentile score on the bar exam and an 88th percentile on the LSAT, um, which is above average. I mean, you know, it's an above average like lawyer score. <clears throat> but the, the biggest thing is that we know it's going to go from uh, 88th to like 98th percentile in six months, <laughs> probably. We're just going to to put uh, put it ahead of, uh, you know, all, all but a handful of humans. Yeah, it's possible that – it's very possible that it happens. Maybe it's probable that that happens. Sometimes I wonder with artificial intelligence and in particular these technologies whether there's going to be a self-driving phenomenon. And when I say self-driving phenomenon, I mean that, you know, in 2015, 2016, when I was writing A World Without Work for The Atlantic and when I was writing a lot about the future of work and automation, I was pretty sure, as I'm sure you were, given that I know that we were talking to the same people, uh, that self-driving cars really were right around the corner. I mean, everyone that I talked to said, we are going to have autonomous municipal fleets, right? There's going to be a ton of like cheap little electric self-driving vehicles on the roads of New York City, Washington, D.C., and you'll hail them, and they'll come right to your door, and they'll all sort of, like, collect at the edge of the city somewhere. They can, like, you know, hang out between the hours of, like, you know, 2 and 6 in the morning, and then they'll, they'll swarm back into the city, and they'll swing us around. It'll be absolutely amazing. Like, none of this came to pass, and I'm not saying none of it will come to pass, but, like, we got from 0 to 99% when it came to the technology of automated vehicles, and we just got stuck at 99 
it seems to me. Like we just haven't been able to get to the point of Waymo has self-driving test pilot projects in Arizona to this is in Los Angeles, this is in San Francisco, to New York and DC. Yeah, I, I, I did talk to a lot of the same people. And, and, and uh, you know, like I, I was with you. It's like I, I was confident that it was going to happen based on the confidence of others that it was going to happen and then it did not happen. Um, I, I will say that on, on this one, the, the thing that shook me up the most was the gulf between GPT-3 and GPT-4. I mean, it was just so much better and stronger and faster in a period of, gosh, like weeks. Uh, and, and so w one of the things that someone pointed out, which I think is right, um, there are a lot of environments that have been hyped about automation that uh, are not happening. And self-driving vehicles is a prime example. Um, but there are others too, and there, there are two major obstacles that they face that ChatGPT does not face. Um, so number one is that you have uh, interaction with the real world and uh, um, high stakes like environments where it's like you can't accept like a 99.9 percent .9 you know success rate on on like making a left turn because then it's like, yeah. you know like you, you crash every then thousand one in every one thousand left turns yeah you're killing <laughs> yeah, someone. yeah. yeah. Uh, whereas like you could accept those kind of confidence intervals when you're like writing a, you know an essay or a poem very true um, and, and then the the other thing is that. You, you're running into robotics limits um, and real-world physical limits um, in, in a lot of these environments, um, whereas, you know, these large language models, it's like whatever, you know, they, they can just eat uh, data points and just, just uh, keep, keep on going. So I think they've found, like, a very fertile avenue uh, for, uh, you know, for, for these tools to just run wild without, uh, you know, like ha having, like, a whole slew of... Um, major, major legal problems. And that's probably right. I think it's probably a pretty good answer to the question of, you know, will AI have the self-driving car phenomenon? Um, I think I hadn't thought of, of the first, although when you said it, it was like, oh, yes, of course, that's obvious. Like, if I, um, I sometimes I'll, I'll, you know, if I use ChatGPT for, like, research or something, I say, like, give me seven papers um, on from economic history about the degree to which technology replaces human labor, right? And I'll get like maybe six papers that are real and one paper that's like a total misprint and like one of the names is misspelled. Like six out of seven ain't bad is my response to that result. This is a, this is a incredibly directionally useful reply from a ChatGPT. If you crash the car six out of seven times, you pull it out of the driveway, that's an utter catastrophe. So like, yeah, th that, that seems like a really, really important point that I hadn't quite thought of. So my, my concern level about this stuff is is sky high. Um, and one of the test cases I use is call center workers, um, which is like you, you definitely don't need genuine human intelligence to like walk people through, you know, an interaction at a level that's uh, probably better than, you know, at least some proportion of human, <laughs> like, you know, human call center workers. Yeah, the call center research seems to pretty clearly... It's funny, call centers, for whatever reason, have been both the site of work-from-home experiments. One of the first uh, work-from-home tests uh, or uh, surveys that was done by Nicholas Bloom was on call centers, um, and he found that working-from-home actually did make some, a lot of them more productive. Um, and then also, it's, it's a seat of, of AI. I think in part just because like, call centers are... It's so rote 
right? Like the, the work they do is like so repetitive that I think it's easier to study productivity. I think it's really interesting to think like, um, you know, it's uh, measuring productivity throughout the economy has got to become, has, it's just become so, so hard. Like think about, um, I don't know how many people you know in like Hollywood, um, or like, you know, you meet with like a, okay, you meet, you meet, you meet a movie executive, you meet like a movie executive's assistant, you'll talk to maybe like a screenwriter, you'll talk to like some other, you know, assistant producer. And you're like, I've had seven lunches. What's the productivity rate of those lunches? Right? Like how many, how many, what percent of a movie did we make in those lunches? What is the output of those lunches? There is none. It's just lunches, lunches, lunches. It's just a ton of conversations about projects that may or may not come down the pike. Like that kind of productivity is like very, very hard to measure. And I guess I wonder how decision makers and managers and chief executives are going to make decisions about replacing certain jobs with AI for a productivity-based purpose when productivity itself is something that's like so, so hard to measure. Like in many of those industries, they're really like hit maker industries, um, where if you have like one enormous movie or you create one incredible franchise, you can feast and feast and feast on that one hit for years. But so that's obviously very productive, but there's no way to formalize that. There's really no like formula for it. And so like, will LLMs be able to get us better franchise tent poles, right? Will the next Marvel be written by an AI? Will the next, you know, um, Harry Potter be written by an AI? Like that's a really weird, interesting question because that's really where the productivity of that part of the economy flourishes. I talked to someone in Hollywood and they actually had ChatGPT4 uh, write a treatment for uh, an espionage TV series and they said that it was pretty good and that they then used it and modified it and tweaked it uh, to, mm -hmm. to try and do something real with it. So uh, what's happening in a lot of these contexts is it'll create something that's like 82% of the way there. Right. And then it, it takes a skilled, experienced human to be like, hmm, like, what am I going to do with this like next eight, eight, 18%? On the Hollywood topic, you, you put the, you put the um, right word on it, which is projects. Everyone has a project. And then what, everyone has multiple projects that they're somehow attached to. And then one of the projects starts gaining energy and momentum and resources. And then, and then what you do is you'd be like, Oh, I've got a live one. And then you like, just like turn to that one and start putting energy into it. Uh, I'm, I'm involved with a couple of things that resemble that actually. And then when, when it starts to get energy, you're like, wow, look at that. Like I, I've been on um, Hollywood pitches and uh, like we, we're, you know, going around and, um, like uh, reading our lines from a script for mm -hmm. you know, these, these network executives. And that, that is the way people measure it really is like, they were like, okay, which of my projects is getting traction? Yeah, right. Yeah, and, and there's, right. It always is like 13 meetings in order to get like two nibbles. And one of the nibbles is fake and the other one, it's, it's, a, it's a very strange industry. And I guess what I'm trying to say is I do think that there's a lot of industries in this country um, where like, and something that I write about in the book, the line between working and not working is actually like very hard to draw. Um, if I'm, for example, you know, the same way that if a um, film executive is out to lunch with a prospective writer who hasn't written a screenplay yet, but they're talking about a treatment, they're talking about a plot or a story that could become a successful script, is that working? Like, yeah, kind of, clearly, you can, you can expense it, um, but it might not amount to anything. There might not be literally any economic output from that meeting. And I feel like in the same way, a lot of my work is, uh, maybe this is true of a lot of creative industries, 
I'll just be on Twitter, right? And I'm not embarrassed to say this. I'm hanging out on Twitter, and I'm reading, and I'm making jokes, and I'm replying I'm to people, to say and, this, I'm not, and I am, you know, uh, you know, outraged with some things that I see, and then I'm really impressed by some things that I see, and maybe there's like a graph or an article or a paper, and I'll say, ah, that's my next piece. At what point of that experience am I working or not working? Like, the whole thing is actually in like this superposition of like working and not working at the exact same time. And I think that a lot of people in white collar work, a lot of people in creative industries are like this, like that they do spend a lot of their time in this, like suspended in the super, in the super position of both working and not working at the same time. Um, and I wonder what the inflection of artificial intelligence is going to do to that. On the one hand, it could make work much more distracting. It could mean there's many more opportunities to spend time both working and not working at the same time. Um, but maybe, you know, the, the utopian vision is that it will make us much more productive and purposeful at doing the things that we know we have to do. And as a result, we can get five days of work done in three or four. That means more leisure. It means more time. It means more productivity, more money for the economy, more money for us, but also more leisure time. So like, this is one of the many places uh, with, with sort of the way that AI is inflecting the future of work that I remain really interested to follow. Yeah, yeah, that, that's the positive vision. And I greatly appreciated your message uh, that you put out I want to say it was earlier this year where you said, you know what we need? A politics of abundance. And, and mm. that is uh, the ideal impact of AI is that somehow it does free us up and it makes us more efficient. Um, maybe we even start using our time for other things because we've shaken free of our workism, um, uh, to, to your point. Um, but I, I'd love for you to close on what the heck you meant by politics of abundance because I, I think it is very much – the opposite of a lot of the politics we're getting nowadays, like we're, we're getting a lot of uh, scarcity and can't do this and zero sumness. Um, and you're, you're trying to, to present a totally different approach. I think that the story of this century in many ways has been a story of intersecting scarcities. One of the biggest problems of the 21st century is the lack of housing in many rich metros, a scarcity of homes. The 2010s, were a period of the lowest levels of construction per capita of any period in recorded American history. So we have a shortage of homes. We need to decarbonize the grid. We've got lots of people, especially on the left, who are saying we have to move to a carbon-free economy, get out coal, get out gas, get out oil. Well, you can't just remove coal and gas and natural gas and oil and still have a functioning economy. You have to replace it with solar and wind and geothermal. That means you have to actually build solar, wind, geothermal, transmission lines. If we want an abundance of healthcare, if we want an abundance of access, we should look at the fact that America has the fewest physicians per capita of yeah. any country in the OECD. And one of the reasons for that is that the American Medical Association limits the number of residency slots. So it makes it very difficult for us to have as many physicians as we need. So what have I just said? We have a scarcity of housing, we have a scarcity of clean energy, and we have a scarcity of physicians, of doctors in America. That's where I want to see abundance. I want abundance in housing, abundance in clean energy. I want abundance in healthcare. I'd love abundance in education. That's where abundance is good. The problem of the 21st century is, what he, is that we've had an abundance of shit. Like the internet makes it very easy to lie, disinformation, misinformation, nonsense. We've got an abundance of that, you know, an abundance of digital nonsense. I want more abundance in the physical world and less abundance in the digital world. Well, that is a fantastic clarion call. Derek Thompson on work, money, meaning, identity, and one of my favorite thinkers and writers, 
uh, on these topics, uh, which are near and dear to my heart. I got to say, uh, you know, I've, I've relied upon you heavily this last number of years. If someone wants to keep up with you in your work, how can they best do so? Uh, yes, yeah, subscribe to the Plain English Podcast. Follow my writing at The Atlantic. I'm at DK Thomp on Twitter. <laughs> uh, I guess those are three ways. And do check out this book of essays. Um, the thing I loved about this book of essays is that they were very, very deep. That they, it would be like a five-page thing, and I'd be like, oh, you know, I can read this pretty quickly. But it's like, oh, wait, I can't read this really quickly because there are actually like a lot of very, very important, impactful ideas here. You know, like if I really want to understand them, like I actually have to, uh, to sit on them for a little bit. So congratulations on this, man. It's like a compilation of some of your greatest hits. Um, but I think people would in, enjoy it immensely if they get their hands on it. I really appreciate that. Thank you, Andrew. Mm-hmm.